Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I am going to improvise. And I'm going to improvise on the topic of improvisation. We're going to talk about improv, improvisation, what is it, how do you do it, and what in the world does it have to do with bluegrass. So, so let's start with that first. Uh, there have been some very clever people who have called bluegrass hillbilly jazz. And if you do a little bit of studying and listening, and if you go through the history of jazz from the, let's say, the New Orleans Dixieland, and then the blues influences, and then all the branches that have formed over time, like bebop, and I mean, all the way up to, uh, you know, a Kenny G record or something like that. A lot of what has happened in jazz is very similar to the historic and musical progression of bluegrass. And the fan base is very similar. Maybe jazz is a little bit bigger. Certainly the commercialized jazz is bigger. It's got more mainstream acceptance. But, you know, that wouldn't be true in uh, in the Southeast, say in 1945, 44, 46, you know, at that time in the South, jazz, you know, wasn't very popular, but maybe in New York or Chicago, you know, it was. But what what I want you to just be aware of is there is a similarity in these two forms of music. Historically, there is also um, musically a lot of similarities between uh, jazz and bluegrass in that. Uh, the instrumentation of a particular, you know, jazz combo is sort of an established thing. You know, piano, bass, drum, sax, piano, bass, drum, sax, trumpet. It's, you know, these sort of little group formations became established. Or if you look at a Dixieland band, you, you know, clarinet, tuba, trombone, um, four-string banjo, things like that. So, in bluegrass, of course, we have a couple of varieties of the standard band. <clears throat> you know, the Bill Monroe model uh, with with no dobro, and then the Flat and Scruggs model with dobro. And sometimes, you know, you've got very light snare drum going on, which is not really done today. Um, and, of course, the harmonica once in a while. And I suppose you could say for a very brief period of time, the accordion. But anyway, the band structures are become sort of established, and you you can almost just look at a picture of a band and say what kind of band that is based on the instruments they're holding and maybe how their hairstyles and what their dress is. Just just think about that, the the comparison between bluegrass and jazz. Um, but in the playing in the in the actual performance of songs, if you've ever been to a jam session, you've heard improvisation going on. Not everyone is improvising, but some are and some aren't. You know, let's say you're standing around a jam and a guy kicks off Foggy Mountain Breakdown on the banjo. He may not be improvising it. He may not be doing any changes to it. He may be playing it exactly as he learned it out of the Earl Scruggs book. Okay, that's cool. Or he may be learning it exactly how he learned it from his teacher, which might be a little bit different. But he's playing, he's sort of like a programmed computer. Through practice, he has learned the song, the first break, the second break, the third break. And then when it comes his time, he hits play internally, and out comes Foggy Mountain Breakdown, break one, down the neck. You know, that kind of thing. That's not improvisation. But following him might be a guitar break. And the guitar break might be played by a guy who has heard Foggy Mountain Breakdown 
and he just heard it played by the banjo player, and he just takes off on it, and he's faking it. Well, faking it is a form of improvisation. It is improvisation. He's making it up as he goes, and he's using some sort of little memory of the basic structure of the tune, either chords or melody and rhythm, and then he's just sort of turning it into something. Well, that's improv. Then it goes over to the mandolin player. The mandolin player may have, um, you know, learned a solo, and so he just plays that solo to the best of his ability, exactly as he can recall it, that's not really improvisation. Let's say it comes around all the way around a circle again, and it comes back to that same mantle player. Now, the second time, he might play it a little bit differently. He might try to throw something in, a little position, a little double stop, or something that, that he played in, you know, Blackberry Blossom. And he might insert that into his break just to see, you know, how it flies. That is improvisation. So sometimes improv, it it doesn't have to be just total free form. I mean, that's at one end of the scale where you, you just, your subconscious is driving the instrument without any pre planned notes. That's one end of the scale. The other end of the scale is to take a tune, uh, let's say you learned the tune uh, Snowshoes on on the mandolin or the fiddle or something, and you, you learned, you're very diligent in practice, and you, you can play it and you can play it and you can play it over and over, and it's, it's very much the same. But then you insert a little triplet, a little embellishment. Well, that's a form of improvisation because maybe you're the only person that ever did that. And you may have learned it from someone else on a different tune or the same tune, but in a different place, or, or you may apply the same idea with slightly different notes. You know, the other guy might've done a slide from fret three to uh, fret five, and you decide to make it from two to five. That's improv. Improv is is a wide scale of barely making alterations to a tune or complete, total uh, creativity on the loose, you might say. Sort of like um, what you might do if you were painting a picture. You could sit there and make copies of the Mona Lisa all day long, and eventually, and I'm sure there are people that can do this, and it's great training, to make exact duplicates of the Mona Lisa. And then, but if you get bored with that, after you've done 600 copies of the Mona Lisa, you might just start slinging paint at it and you might make these Mona Lisa-like things. They look kind of like the Mona Lisa, but you know, you were spattering the paint at it with a toothbrush or used colors that don't make any sense. That's improv in painting. Okay, let's think about the word improvisation. Think about that inside the word improvisation or improvise is the word improve. So I think um, you should consider improvisation to be an improvement upon something else, perhaps a tune or a chord progression or just an idea. So the whole idea with improvisation is to improve something. And if you watch a little kid fooling around with a piano, you'll let's say you take a little three-year-old or four-year-old and put them in front of a piano and they start tinkering around. They soon figure out that, you know, when they press certain keys, they hear sounds and they begin to doodle around. And to them, it's an improvement. Maybe not on anything in particular. It's not like they're doing 16 variations of Yankee Doodle or something. They don't even know how to play Yankee Doodle. But they're improving because they're creating sounds that they like. And that's an improvement on not hearing sounds that they like. 
But little kids are, are born with this ability to tinker around with things. They, they can take some blocks and fiddle around with them and make them into things. <clears throat> they, all children have this inborn ability to improvise. Take speech, for example. When a child is first born, they can't speak at all. And so they have a great deal of trouble communicating anything that makes any sense. And, and it's difficult to improvise, although they do improvise just using squealing and crying and sounds and gestures. <clears throat> but if we talk about speech, how they learn speech was by listening to a lot of other speech and beginning to make sense of it and developing a vocabulary limited as it may be when they're very young, but they begin to have a toolkit of verbal linguistic uh, ideas that they can use to express themselves. And music is just like that. When you, when the little kid sits down and starts tinkering around with the piano for the very first time, they don't have any vocabulary, but I've heard this in my son he'll start playing something and sort of like it and he'll do it over and over and over and over. And it may be kind of weird sounding. And I just take the hands off approach. I don't want to go over there and try to straighten him out and say, well, that note doesn't sound so good. Let him do whatever he wants to. He's improvising. This you do with speech. Babies do it. They have a very small vocabulary, but they begin to put those words together in new ways and they are constantly accumulating new words. So, you know, I, I don't like to hear people claim that they don't know how to improvise because if they're talking to me or if you're listening to this podcast and understanding what I'm saying, you've developed a large vocabulary and you can, you know, go downtown to the coffee shop and talk to your friend about this cool podcast that you've been listening to and express yourself quite well. And you learn to do that by learning the skill of verbal improvisation. And you can do that with music too. Now, here's the problem. You have the gift when you're born of listening, making sense of the world, and then experimenting and communicating with others in a way that they understand. That's the part that a lot of musical improvisers maybe fail at. Uh, they may be communicating, but only to only a small minority understand what in the world they're doing. You see that sometimes in the jazz world, and I've seen it in the bluegrass world. But what happens to that kid? How do we turn into these adults who say, I, I don't know how to improvise? when they clearly have demonstrated through speech that they do know how to improvise, how do they get to that point where they are convinced that they can't improvise? You know, it's other people that do that to them. You might say it's society. You know, they say, ah, that's not right. Try, uh, do it this way. Oh, stop doing that. Oh, you're driving me crazy, kid. Play something that sounds good. Yeah, don't, you know, if you, when you tell your kids that, you're stopping them from improvising. Now, I'm not saying all of that is bad. You know, if a kid is mispronouncing a word and you help him understand how to pronounce the word correctly, then he can still do it the other way if he wants to, but he will have developed new techniques for using his lips and tongue and vocal cords, and which he might not have been taking the trouble to do. So anyway, we start listening to what other people say, and we try to please them. And so we might reduce our improvisation to simply copying what other people want us to do. And uh, some people just say they can't do it. They can't improvise. They give up on it, even though they've proven through learning to speak that they can, in fact, improvise in that area. 
and they just try to satisfy others by playing whatever somebody else decided for them. And they, I'll come back to this, but there is value in learning to do what someone else sets in front of you. We'll come back to that. So how can you um, rekindle that improvisation spirit that you had as a baby? And how can you apply that to music? Possibly other areas of your life. Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about different ways to improvise. And one of the ways to improvise is to take an established tune and add embellishments to it. You could, you know, learn the standard, the first break in beginning mandolin one of boiling cabbage down. You learn it note for note and you get pretty good at it. Well, if you turn to, uh, you know, the next page, I have embellished version. It's the same basic tune, but we're adding some things to it. Now, when you learn that, you're not learning, you're not improvising. I'm doing it for you. I'm showing you how you can improve, improvise upon that tune or possible ways to do it. So that's one way to begin to embellish something that you've already learned from someone else. And you may learn those embellishments from someone else, but then you can take those embellishments later and apply them at other times to other tunes. Another way to improvise is just to get out there and try the uncharted territory, playing crazy stuff, you might say. There's a video, up. if I can find it on YouTube, I'm going to post it on the show notes page. Go to grasstalkradio.com and slide down to this episode and hit that episode. And you know the routine where the show notes page is. There's a really cool video called the Atonal Jazz Vamp. I love this guy. I must be the only guy that loves this guy because it doesn't have a lot of views, but it's, it's really cool and it demonstrates this playing crazy stuff in sort of uncharted territory idea. And that is the way to improvise. And you can also write tunes of your own because, well, I'll come back to that as a means to improvise. So a question should, if you want to learn to improvise, should you just forget trying to learn what's in the book, what's written down, playing those exact notes and just play whatever you feel like? Well, yeah, if you want to be a pure, purely improvisational player, yeah, you probably should do that. Um, but on the other hand, you, you know, if you choose to do that, you have to suffer the consequences. You know, if you insist on improvising every note that you play and never learning, you know, the standard version, never learning Sally Good in the way Grandpa played it, you're going to be viewed as kind of weird, you know, but if, if you want to be viewed as kind of weird, Hey, do it. You know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just saying that pure total free form improvisation is not always acceptable. Just like if your child free form improvised every verbal expression they ever made, and they just constantly made up their own words and you, you, you wouldn't understand them and you're not going to develop a very good relationship with them. So I suggest that you work kind of in both camps, <clears throat> learn to learn standard words and phrases and correct pronunciation and the parts of speech and, you know, learn those things so that you have some vocabulary, musical vocabulary to work with, but also work in the other camp of learn practice the techniques of modifying, of going into uncharted territory, even if it's for little, small, limited times, so that you can stretch and mold that thing you learn into something else. Okay, so back to babies, you know, without any words, they do a lot of hollering and crying as they attempt to communicate. And, you know, they learn a few words and they begin to construct ideas and communicate them with the very few words that they have. Maybe they only have 10 words. I remember when my son was, you know, learning to talk, there was a time period, I don't remember how old exactly he was, but where my wife and I could run down and count 
how many words he knows. He's got 15 words. And then, you know, a month later, he has 110 words that we could recall. And we finally gave up on that because the list was growing so rapidly. But there was a time when we could recall and count pretty much exactly how many words he knew on that day. And he could still communicate. He couldn't communicate as well as he does today. You know, he's a good bit older and has a much larger vocabulary. And he can, you can have some amazing conversations with this kid now. And he's only nine. But one of the things babies do sometimes is invent new words or, you know, um, when I, when my son was little, very little, you know, and he's, you're trying to get him to say daddy, he would say dadu, dadu. It wasn't daddy, it was dadu. He just liked the sound of dadu better. So I became dadu, but he eventually said daddy, and he would sometimes say one or sometimes the other. He now had the ability to improvise by simply choosing which variation of dad he wanted to use. And uh, I'll tell you a little story about my, my oldest daughter, who is now an art teacher up in Philadelphia. She, when she was crawling, or crawling and walking, but she's very young, just learning how to speak. Uh, she's crawling around on the floor one day, and I saw she had picked something up and was looking at it, and I was afraid she would put it in her mouth or something. And, you know, it was a little, some kind of little object she found on the floor. And I said, Amanda, what have you got there? And she held it up to me and said, a screw bounce. And I was far enough away, I couldn't see what she had. A screw bounce? Here, bring it to me. She brought it to me, and I looked at it. And it was one of those little springs from out, from inside a, a retractable ballpoint pen. You know, the little, the little spring that slides down onto the ink thing, cartridge thing, so that it would retract. That little uh, pen spring. Well, she had picked that up. She didn't have the word spring in her vocabulary. So she took two words that she did have, screw and bounce. And she called it a screw bounce because it had a little spiral, kind of like a screw. And I guess she had been fiddling with it and realized that it bounced, you know, when she dropped it. So a spring became a screw bounce. So that's, she was forced to use two words from her limited vocabulary because she just didn't have the word spring. So if she had the word spring, she would have said spring. It's a little spring. And, you know, today I'm sure she calls it a spring, not a screw bounce. Kids also play with words. They'll like, like Jackson saying dadu, or, you know, instead of, I'm, I'm saying, say daddy, and he'd say dadu. Well, he's playing with the words, and he was probably, he might have even been deliberately changing the word just to amuse me or frustrate me, you know. I wouldn't put that past a, uh, you know. 10-month-old or 6-month-old, whatever age he was. It was interesting about Jackson when he was little, very little, way before. I mean, I'm talking, I don't know how old he was, 4 or 5 months old, way before he could speak. We're talking to him, of course. You talk to babies. And uh, got him bouncing him on my knee. Darlene's sitting next to me on the couch. And I'm saying, say, Daddy. You know, that kind of, you know, talking to a baby. That's how they learned it, to speak. And trying to get him to talk, just see if he could say anything, you know, ba-ba or something, you know. And he just he just got real stiff and said, I love you. And I was just shocked. It was like watching a ventriloquist dummy. Or I was like, whoa, Darlene, did you, see, did you hear that? Say it again. I love you. Well, then we spent the next week trying to get him to do it again. He never did it again. He didn't speak for several months after that, and he couldn't say anything like that. I don't know where that came from inside that kid, being able to say, I love you, one or twice. He did it exactly twice. Very strange, but he must have heard us say it, and somehow or another, he was able to say it. It was crazy.
And maybe as musicians, we're like that sometimes. Sometimes miracles happen and we play something really amazing. We're like, I don't know how I just did what I did, but uh, whatever. So anyway, when it um, comes to words, think like a baby. Uh, And then you have to take this forward and apply it to music. So here's a little exercise I want you to try. And this is the way babies fool around with words. Just, here's the exercise. Take the word duck, D-U-C-K, duck, and spend a half an hour amusing yourself as to how many different ways you can say the word duck. And you'll probably drive everyone around you crazy, uh, like your children do to you when they're doing similar things. You might repeat it a bunch of times, duck, 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 duck. You might raise the pitch and lower the pitch and up and down and uh, do it in different accents. You know, pretend to say duck in Russian and German and Chinese. And, you know, you know what I'm saying. Fool around with the word duck in as many ways as you can. That's the sort of tinkering and improvising practice that babies do with words. And you can do similar things on your instrument. There are cases where babies can't produce the sounds that you're asking them to do. Maybe they just, they've got ba, 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 ba figured out, but they haven't got da, da, da figured out. So they're going to have trouble saying daddy when they haven't figured out the da. They, they, they got the ba, you know, or the na, or the ma, or the pa. So it takes practice. And this is the way it is on your instrument. You know, the baby hasn't learned how to control his lips and vocal cords and tongue and diaphragm and all these things in order to say particular words. And you, as the parent, you look at them and you say, banana, say banana, Jackson, banana. And he goes, nana. You know, he didn't say the buh. Well, he's trying. And when he does learn to say the word banana properly, that hasn't hurt him in any way. It's helped him communicate more clearly with the other people who use the word banana. And he still retains the ability to say nana when he wants to. So you learn to say banana, you can still say nana, or you can say, give me that nanner. Give me some of that nanner pudding over there. You can say, like my son liked to call him banani. Or he got into calling him bananu. He's just playing with the word banana, but he still had the technique for banana. So with gains in your technical ability and your musical vocabulary, it gives you more choices and more options. He could have a lot of fun playing with the word banana. And you can have a lot of fun playing with the licks and phrases that you learn. So now let's talk about, you know, babies are learning to speak by copying. And then by tinkering with them and experimenting with them and building new speech techniques and associating these with ideas and physical objects in the real world, concepts, things like that. A lot of people don't learn to play music that way. When I was in band learning to play the French horn, I didn't learn that way. I was taught how to read music, how to play quarter notes, whole notes, half notes, eighth notes, triplets, and so on and so on and so on. And I practiced those things, those dots on the paper. But after six years of band, I had no clue how to improvise because they didn't want you to improvise. You can't have a band or orchestra and everybody sitting there improvising. They want you to play the predetermined thing. But when you go to a bluegrass jam session and you know 10 songs that you've practiced and they play 20, what are you going to do on those other 10? You have to improvise. Well, if you haven't learned how to improvise, you're going to have a hard time and it's not as much fun. So one of the ways to learn to improvise is like a child copying You can copy other people. And if you build a large enough vocabulary by copying other people, then you're more likely to be able to 
improvise on the things you don't know. For example, you could, as a mandolin player or a fiddle player, learn a Sam Bush solo note for note. And that's going to teach you a lot. Because guys like Sam Bush know, I'm presuming, more than you do. Has a larger vocabulary. Has more skills, more techniques, more ways to apply them in different situations. Is a more accomplished musician and so you practice and you learn, and there's no excuse today. You can learn, you know, with the amazing slowdowner and with YouTube videos and the books and tablature and all the resources. Nobody has an excuse. And they say, well, I, how will I ever figure that out? Like back in the day when you could put the record on and slow it down to, you know, slow it down to 16 and struggle through it and try to sort the notes out. Today, it's a lot easier. So no excuses, but you can learn a lot from that. And after you learn it, you can absorb some of that that you learned and apply it to your own playing. So copying is a way to learn the improvisational technique and embellishment ideas of others. Maybe you're a banjo player and you decide to sit down and learn note for note some free form or whatever improvisation of a Bela Flex solo. I would suggest that it's a good idea after you learn to play that very well and you understand what's going on to then swear that you will never play it. You, you won't go to the next jam and say, hey, let's play that, you know, whatever, monkeys from outer space tune that off the 14th Bela Fleck, you know, just swear you'll never play it. Limit yourself. I'm not saying you can't play it. You know, you want to play it, play it. Uh, but I think it's a good idea to limit yourself to learning it, then using the ideas, licks, concepts, taking what you learn and applying them in a different context, a different tune, different places, bust it up, make it your own. Because, you know, if somebody wants to hear Sam Bush or Bela Fleck or whatever, best thing to do is go hear them, not hear you do a you know, a perfect copy of it. It's kind of like that Mona Lisa painting. You know, I want to see the real thing, but I also want to see your painting. And you won't get a satisfaction out of music if you constantly only regurgitate what someone else told you to play. However, that is how you learn. You have to, you got to start somewhere. Learning my version of Salt Creek is not going to hurt you. Even if you already have your version, my version might add some new food for thought that you could apply to Salt Creek and 500 other tunes. Now, when I've been teaching people how to improvise, and, and I always try to do that because with beginners, you know, they only go so far with the memorized tunes. You know, you're working on those four, five, six, seven, eight tunes over time. And the chords that go with them, and you're practicing them, and you're practicing them. And then they go to a jam session, and two of those songs get played too fast. And then they play 40 other songs that they have never heard of. And they don't know what to do, and they're just begging off the break. So I've tried to always incorporate in my lessons, and I do this in my video lessons as well. I try to teach people the basics of improvisation in the real world. I'm not trying with a student of that level to teach them how to be like a free form jazz master or something like that. I just want them to be able to see that they can apply licks from soldier's joy to, uh, ashes of love in a different key. You know, it's funny, you know, a lot of the students uh, when I'm, maybe I would sit down with a student and we've been learned some tunes and now we're going to start going into that world of improv and, you know, as a baby, they learn how to talk, but they swear they can't do it on their instrument. And I'll say, I'm going to play a G chord on the guitar. I'm just going to play some straight rhythm for two measures. And then I'm going to go to an E minor chord and back to G and E minor. And I want you, student, to play the G pentatonic scale. Those five notes I just taught you and we played up and down and up and down a few times. You pick any one of those five notes, play them in any order you want, repeat them in any way, make little, make music, pretend you have a five note piano and you're going to jam 
play those five notes and I'm going to play these two different chords just to prove to them that you can use that five note G pentatonic scale over the G chord and the E minor chord, all fully explained in both of my theory books, uh, the Flint Hill Scrolls for banjo and the Mandolin Masterclass for mandolin, of course. So I do this and they play nothing. They go ahead and play. You just play the scale up and down first. So they play the scale up and down. I say, now just mix it up. You know, do whatever you feel like. They stop. And I hear this all the time. I don't know what to play. Well, my answer to them always is, neither do I. I don't know what to play. And if I tell you what to play, it's not improvisation. But then... I'll say, well, but let me show you what I might do. So I might go like this, or I might go like this, or I might go like this. Now, try it again. <laughs> they don't get much better at it. Over time, if they'll work at it, they will get better at it. I'll just say, pretend you have a five-note piano, and you're going to sit down and play, and try to amuse yourself. Try to think back when you were a kid, when you were a baby, even. It gets squeezed out of us by other people's expectations. and But if you can rediscover that spirit of improvisation that you possess, you have it. You know, maybe you can solve this fun paradox called improvisation, which is the thing nobody could teach you to do. But let's, let's do what I do with my students and let's talk about real-world improvisation. And the, the method that I describe in mandolin masterclass, one of the methods of improvisation that I talk about is called the chain of licks, what I call the chain of licks. And this is probably the most common methodology for improvisation in the bluegrass world. And that is, I'll use banjo players for an example. You're a banjo player, and as you learn to play, you accumulate little mental baskets in your head of G licks. Anything you played while a G chord was happening potentially could go into that basket called G licks. And you'll have another basket called C licks and another one called D licks. And you got a bunch of G licks and some C licks and a few D licks. And you've got a couple of E minor licks and you've got an F lick. And you got this other couple of licks that you realize you could pretty much put in any basket. This could be a, G lick, an F lick, an E lick, a D lick. Uh, I can play this one anywhere. I'm going to put that over here in my chromatic. I can play this anywhere licks basket. So you got these little baskets. And then you go to the jam session and you play your Foggy Mountain Breakdown. You play your Cripple Creek and you play your Break to Old Home Place and so on. And then some wise guy wants to play something you don't know. And it comes around to you, and by then you've figured out the chord progression because usually that's simpler than actually figuring out the melody. So you got the chord progression sort of figured out, and it comes around to you, and you improvise by digging into your basket. Let's say it went two measures of G followed by two measures of F followed by two measures of G. You go in your basket, and you string together some G stuff and some F stuff, what I call G noise and F noise and C, and C noise and D noise. And you put them together in an attempt to, it's like stringing words together to form new sentences. You have this vocabulary of individual words and you pull them out and put them in order so that they make sense. And as you get better at this, you find out which licks connect to which other licks. If, if you're playing a down the neck G lick, it doesn't seamlessly attach to that way up the neck D lick, you know? So, but that method is used by professional players all the time. The chain of licks, not thinking of individual notes and I'm going from this note to that note to this note. You're thinking in, in phrases or words to use the verbal equivalent. Okay. So that's, that's one way that real world players improvise the chain of licks this could happen on the mandolin you might be playing that old shuffle lick on the double stop you know fret seven and fret five on the middle two strings and you're you know playing that dum 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 well and you realize you can move that 
other places. So if the song goes from D to C, you could take that lick and just slide down two frets and improvise over that. Well, that's a valid method of improvisation. The chain of licks. Another way is adding embellishment. And using the verbal speech analogy, it would be a lot like taking the words hot dog and turning it into hot diggity dog or hot doggy or what my son used to. I got him a banjo when he was very, very young. And uh, he called it his banjoey. He could say banjo, but he preferred banjoey. So he was adding embellishment to the word banjo, banjoey. So those are the two most common methods. Having a basket full of licks that you learn by learning some preordained tunes and filing them away by what chord they don't sound too horrible with or embellishments. And speaking of that, I will, I have a, on my mandolin video lessons, a, a number of them, and they're mostly over in the, on the intermediate list are put out by song title. So it's like Salt Creek, uh, Red Haired Boy. And so let's say you already learned a version of Red Haired Boy. Well, what I give you in, in my video, Red Haired Boy, they'll be the basic version and then an embellished version. Sometimes there's more than one embellishment. And the idea is that you can learn a basic version, then you can go over and learn the embellished version, and then you can insert those embellishments into the basic tune as you see fit. And you can also take those same embellishing ideas, which are my pre-planned improvisational ideas, then you can use them in other tunes where and when you choose. So it's a way of giving you a larger vocabulary of things that you can improvise. It, it's like learning new words that now you can insert into sentences. I would think, you know, it's it's a lot like, you know, calling a hot dog a searing red hot dog. You know, I'm I'm describing it more fully. Well, embellishments can do that. So those songs, uh, what I'm sometimes disappointed is uh, they, those song lessons don't sell as well as some of the other ones, because I think a lot of people, you know, they get their first book and they, they learn Salt Creek from some book or video or something. And then they say, well, I already know that I, you know, I don't need that one. And they miss learning how to embellish those tunes and which they can apply to other tunes course, learning, a, you know, just learning a standard version of Salt Creek can help you play other songs, too. I'm not denying that, but uh, if you want to learn embellishments, you might scope out some of those mandolin song video lessons. Okay, enough about all that for now. Let's talk about, you know, if you just start cutting and pasting licks and putting them together and calling that improvisation, it may not be very musical sounding. The better you do that, the more musical it will be. But, Or take the other example where you just sit down and you begin to play sort of random note ideas and you're improvising. You're just creating free form. Well, I used to do this with my students too. I would say, you know, the bluegrass world is occupied by our, our instrumentals tend to follow forms and we tend to play a lot of fiddle tunes. And sometimes longer banjo tunes and things like that. But I would say learning to write a song is very much like learning how to improvise, except you don't have the time pressure. You don't have to instantly come up with it and be successful. You know, when, when a person, it comes around to you in the jam session, they say, take it. And you don't know the song and you take it. Well, you have to instantly create the solo on demand for, well, tune writing and composition is very much the same thing, except you don't have the time pressures and you don't necessarily have the audience. So I would give this assignment to my students and say, just, you know, take some staff paper and mark it off and make, you know, eight bars repeated 
followed by eight bars repeated. That's an A part played twice and a B part played twice. You know, your standard fiddle tune type setup. Now, just using what knowledge you have, go home and write yourself a mandolin tune. Write your own fiddle tune. Just go home. Just, you know, you can just use quarter notes and eighth notes, streams of eighth notes. And, you know, the type of thing that you've been playing in Boil Cabbage Down Salt Creek, just make up your own tune. And they would come back the next week and they would have three measures filled in. Lots of erasing and scribbling. And I'd say, okay, play me what you got so far. You know, I just didn't make any sense. And I said, well, it's your first try, you know. You know it, no, think about this. David Grisman, he's got two very popular instrumentals. One of them's called Opus 38 and one's called Opus 57. I said, ask yourself this. Why don't you have a record with Opus 2 and Opus 4 and Opus 12? What happened to Opus 22? And Opus, by the way, for classical music people will know this, it just simply means my composition number one. So my first composition is Opus 1, my first little tune. My second song I wrote, oh, I'll call that Opus 2. And then later they might get titles. It was just a way of cataloging what you had composed. So when you get to Opus 57, that's the 57th tune that Grisman put down on paper. Okay, well, the question is, what happened to number 23? Well, 23 probably wasn't that good. He, he maybe didn't really like it. He wrote it, but, he, you know, wasn't that good. Well, you're the same way. When you sit down to write your own tune, which is just super slow, no-pressure improvisation, it might not be that good. That's okay. Just write another one and then call out Opus 2 and write Opus 3. You know, when you get to 57, you're going to get better at this. And another way to do that, that low pressure, slow improvisation training is, well, don't burden yourself with trying to figure out the melody and the chords. Take a song, a standard. Take a song like Sitting on Top of the World. Chart that baby out write the chords above it and figure out what key you're going to do it in. Let's say I'm going to do this in A. And write yourself a solo for that song. And you can kind of hum the melody, and that'll give you some direction as to where to go with the notes. Try to put down notes that kind of resemble the melody. But you can change it any way you want to. And so you create a solo. Write your own solo. That's a very slow form way of practicing improvising a solo in the hot seat at a jam session. So you write your own solo and then you practice it a bunch. And then you go to the jam session when they play sitting on top of the world in the same key, you whip off your pre-planned quote unquote improvised solo that you wrote at home and practiced. That's not true improvisation, but the skills you gain from doing that will eventually turn into the ability to do it on the fly. Okay, enough about that. How can you, as you are creating that solo or writing that original tune, just choosing a little song structure, either a preordained tune or one of your own creation, how can you make it a little more musical? Because, you know, when you're hearing that little kid playing these random things on the piano. Why is it kind of annoying? These odd note sequences, it doesn't seem to go anywhere or resolve anywhere. It can be maddening. And I take the approach, I'm not going to go over there and straighten him out. I just want him to experiment. But if you want to make it more palatable to the listener, there are a couple of ways you can do it. And the first is repetition. There's an old thing that's thrown around in the jazz world. Hey man, if you hit a wrong note, just do it twice and everybody will think you meant to do it. Well, there's some truth in that. If you hit a clam and you do it a couple of times in a row, you know, it, it become begins to become, uh, the audience begins to believe that you intended it from the first. So the, the idea is that repetition is part of music. If you take an old fiddle tune, I mean, Practically any tune, first off, you're going to play the A part 
twice and the B part twice. And sometimes the second half of the B part is just like the second half of the A part or the ending of, you know, there's a lot of repetition going on in music, both melodically and rhythmically. So don't think that every measure that you write in your, the new tune you're going to create has to be new and original all the time. You might come up with eight notes you like and do it again and again and again, and then change a little bit at the end. Repetition. Repetition seems to make more sense musically to we humans. So use it. Use repetition. So that's the first thing. The second thing is try modification. Let's say you write your first little measure, and then you use repetition, and you play that same little measure again, and then you play that same little measure again. Now on the fourth bar, try using modification. Take that same little basic idea and just change it a little bit. You might even do that in the second measure or the second half of the second measure. But what I'm saying is you might use the same concept, the same rhythm with different notes or the same notes with different rhythm, you know. So repetition and modification of a, rep of a repetition is a way to kind of improve the musicality of what you're doing. Okay, now a little tip here for using improv when you're performing is that everything doesn't need improvisation. You know, you just want to improve on everything. Well, sometimes the audience says, oh, you could micro-improve something, do a little slide into this note or add a little double stop here or a little tremolo there and improve it and make it sound better and good. That's good improvisation, but sometimes you have to remember the audience. Sometimes those people clamoring to hear Man of Constant Sorrow, they might not want to hear you play it in 5-4 time with a bunch of uh, like major 7th chords and in a different, you know. I mean, you can do what you want to with these things, but if they're hollering for Man of Constant Sorrow, they want to hear a cover. They want to hear it like they know it. So if you want to play it your way, you want to do it in 5-4 time and whatever, play it in a minor key or do whatever, you might have to put the chicken wire up in front of your stage and your tip jar is probably going to be pretty light. So bottom line is sometimes if you want to be light, you have to give them what they want. So just free form improv on everything, that stream of consciousness playing, you know, might not be what they want, and so they don't think you're very good, even though what you did might have amazed your fellow um, super musicians. But, you know, sometimes Grandma just wants to hear the tune. So you need to learn how to do that, too. The last thing I want to talk about here is I will sometimes get the question about music theory. Will it help? You know, if I, because I don't know anything about music theory, or I know a little bit, but if I learn about that, will it help me improvise? And I would say, yes, it will. It's, it's a lot like that English teacher. You know, you trudge off to school when you're five or six years old, and you already know how to speak. You know, you, you got uh, ways of describing that teacher. <laughs> and out on the playground, you can carry on quite a conversation and express yourself quite well. But the, the English teacher insists on you learning the difference between a noun and a verb and an adjective and learn the proper parts of speech and how to construct proper sentences and teaching you the, the technical parts about verbal communication. And begrudgingly, you, you tried to learn some of that. Well, that's a lot like learning music theory. It will help. It's not going to um, necessarily help you kindle, rekindle that spirit you had as an infant learning to speak where you can improvise, you know, and copy and play with words and things like that. That theory is not going to do that, but it does give you additional tools of understanding. An example you might consider would be Earl Scruggs. I could be wrong about this, but I don't think Earl Scruggs or Bill Monroe or Lester Flatt were well-versed in music theory. You know, they couldn't rap on a, have a long conversation, you know, about 
cadences and voicings and chord inversions and, you know, that, that you could learn about. Let's say you went to college and you studied music theory. They didn't know that, but they sounded good, you know. So you can be a good musician and not have this knowledge. But on the other hand, a little knowledge can help you, too. I'll give you an example of this. In our band, Cedar Hill, for variety, we would sometimes do a barbershop quartet acapella song. I remember we used to do Bill Grogan's Goat, which my mother taught me. I used to tell this little joke. As we introduced it, I would say, yeah, you know, this is a song, uh, Bill Grogan's Goat, that my mother taught me. You know, I used to come in from the backyard and I would be filthy and She'd stick me in the bathtub, fill it up, and put some Mr. Bubble in there and be scrubbing all the dirt off of me and, you know, be teaching me little songs and singing with me while I was in the bathtub. And and this song is one that she taught me last week. And I would always get a laugh because, you know, they expected I'm a kid and here's a grown man saying his mother's giving him a bath. I guess if you have to explain a joke, it's not that funny. But it used to get some pretty good laughs. I, I told that standard introduction one time when my mother was in the audience and I thought she was going to die. Anyway, we used to do this song and barbershop harmonies are built on four note chords rather than the standard three note chords that are found in most folk and bluegrass music, where in a bluegrass song, you're singing the, the root, the third and the fifth in some combination. But in barbershop, you'll sometimes include the sixth, so you got root, third, fifth, six, or root, third, fifth, flat, seven. So you've got these slightly more complex chords, and that's what gives them the barbershop harmony sound. Well, you could learn to sing that part where you go to the sixth or you go to the flat seventh. You could learn those. But if you know what they are, if you know what a sixth is or a flat seven is, now you can think about how could I find that note and apply it in some other context. So all I'm saying is theory knowledge will not hurt you and it can help you. So you banjo players, I've uh, just check out the Flint Hill Scrolls. It's a uh, banjo oriented uh, schooling in music theory that you can apply in the real world. I don't go into things that you can't use. So scope out the Flint Hill Scrolls. And for mandolin players, check out the book Mandolin Masterclass. And also I've got some, for mandolin, some videos like the Pentatonic Improv series and things like that. And a bunch of free videos that talk about some basic music theory knowledge. So it's not going to hurt you. And sometimes, you know... If if you weren't born to be Mozart and or Chris Thiele, as I always say, sometimes you have to use whatever tools you can to improve your playing. And you know, let's say you know you don't have the 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 greatest physical ability. Maybe you can make up for that with some theory knowledge and come up with some wonderful harmony ideas or whatever. Anyway, theory's not going to kill you. So. And I've written the most painless methods that you can possibly find. So you can go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode, click this episode, and that'll take you to the show notes, and I'll have links to those resources for you. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this, my sort of free-form improv about improvisation, and I hope that you will remember that the point of improvisation is to improve upon your music. So anyway, thanks for listening to the show. Don't forget to rate and review the show over on iTunes and share links with all your bluegrass friends. And take care, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.